Welcome back, everyone, to Drunk Bible Study Bonus Edition, where we are talking through more Ezekiel. It is almost the end of Ezekiel. We have two more episodes left. I'm so excited. I always love moving on. <laughs> you know, moving on is good. It's okay. It's it's good to let go and let go yeah, lightly. New beginnings. New beginnings, yes. New beginnings are great. So today we're going to be talking about ancient instruments and ancient gods of old, amongst other things. It'll be a fun time for sure. Uh, so there was this instrument of Gath that was referenced throughout our readings today. Well, just in the psalm. Yeah, in the psalm. Just in the psalm, yeah. yeah. And I thought we ran into that in the past too. Did you? We did. Okay. We definitely did. Now, interestingly, this thing is called a kinnor, K-I-N-N-O-R. And it's an ancient Israelite musical instrument in the yoke lutes family. Oh. And it's the first instrument mentioned in the Hebrew Bible. It's actually mentioned in Genesis 421. Whoa. Which is nuts. I didn't realize that it was like that That's fun. early. Yeah. Was it called just like a lute? Back in Genesis? I don't That's remember. That's an interesting point. Maybe it was just called a lute. Hmm. Yeah, it says related instruments, a lyre, a harp, a neville. A neville? Like neville longbottom? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry. What was the question? That they're played with a... A Neville Longbottom? Is that what you just said? <laughs> no, no. That that's a. Re- it just says related instruments, and that's one of the related instruments. So, oh, I see that the Neville is related. Okay. Yes. Cool. Okay, so cool. it's like an ancient stringed instrument. Yes. Instrument. Yes. So it's the first string instrument to be mentioned in the Bible, appearing in Genesis four twenty one, and it is supposed to have ten strings made from sheep's small intestine played with a pick. Though the book of Samuel notes that David played the canor with his hand, so he probably handpicked it. Oh, so was it yeah. was David playing a canor the whole time? Maybe. Not just a harp? It definitely looks like a lyre, kind of. I can put, you know, what this interpretation from the Wikipedia site is on it, but it looks lyre-esque for sure. Huh. So, okay, it's mentioned hmm. 42 times in the Old Testament. Jeez. Yeah, which is which makes me believe that perhaps the liar that they're referencing in this is actually just the Kenor, I'm assuming, yeah, or I vice versa. Yeah, I guess that would make sense. Yeah, so it's in relation to divine worship, prophecy, secular festivals, and prostitution. It's mentioned... Oh. Gosh. Yeah, in conjunction with the Neville, N-E-V-E-L, which is also presumed to be a liar, but it's larger and louder than the Kenor. So that's interesting. Huh. I, I did I did learn that in modern Hebrew, Neville or Nevel, mm-hmm. I'm not sure Maybe how you it's say Nevel, it, yeah. is, is used for like modern day harps. Okay. That's the word that they use. So it seems like maybe just larger scale. And so now we use that. I, I don't know, but that's that's the impression I got. It says that the minimum number of canor to be played in the temple is nine with no maximum limit. So there has to be at least nine canor, okay. just so you you're aware. You can go as wild as you want, though. You could wow. have a hundred if you want. Yeah, but don't do any less than that. Exactly. <laughs> okay. And That's wild. it signifies, it says the word canor is used in modern Hebrew to signify the modern Western violin. So that's fun. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Huh. That's all I got on this. Yeah, so I, w- I was just going to add a little bit to that is just that 
I was trying to look up the difference between lyres and lutes. Mm. So we talk about things being in one family or the other. And it seems like essentially what it comes down to is that lyres don't have any frets on the neck. Oh, interesting. Like a harp, right? You just pluck the string and that's it. Yeah. Versus a lute, which would fall into the same family then, I guess, by this logic as like violins and violas yeah. and you know, viola de gambas and stuff like that, is that you can put your finger on the strings on a flat surface to like shorten them, essentially, to change their pitch. Okay. So that's kind of the difference. So like a lute, you play kind of more like a guitar or violin, that type of thing, mm-hmm. versus a lyre, which is more like a harp. Yeah. Interesting. Is a viola de gamba a, a viola of shrimp? <laughs> <laughs> viola de gamba. Uh, no. But... But I bet you could come up with some fun kind of shrimp-based designs for a viola Amazing. da gamba. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> now, a viola da gamba is like a, it's a sort of a Renaissance era mm. instrument, probably even earlier than that, really. But it was kind of like a cello type size, but it had frets. Instead of like a modern day cello or violin, there's no frets. You're just sort of pinching the string between your finger and the, you know, the neck of it. And so you're able to do vibrato and stuff like that versus like a guitar and things like that where you're pushing the string down, but there's frets on it that kind of stop it at specific points. Okay. The viola da gamba was kind of like that. Okay. Like frets along the neck of the instrument. Much like a lute, I suppose. Yes. (laughs) Yes, quite. Yeah. (laughs) Amazing. Um, Okay, so, so I was looking into... I was just trying to find like anything interesting to talk about, to be honest. And <laughs> I was interested in this idea of like cherubim, right? Because we talked about palm trees and cherubim being all over the walls of this temple design. Mm-hmm. And that the cherubim were specifically described as having two faces, one that was human and one that was lion. Yeah. Both with yeah. frosted and, tips. Yeah. No one denies that yeah. part. Frosted tips all around. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. And so I was kind of like, wait a minute. Like, I don't remember cherubim having multiple faces. Like, did they? Is that a thing? And so I started trying to look into that. And boy, boy, howdy. The internet, turns out, is a terrible place yeah. to find information. I And in general. It's a terrible place. But, but yeah, it's just, yeah, in general, it's a sure. terrible place. Yeah. Well, so here's the thing. So like, I was looking on, what is it? Like Christianity Stack Exchange, the Hermeneutic Stack Exchange, various other like... Bible study resources and things like that, where I was trying to look up like what a cherubim look like and also what's the difference between cherubim and seraphim, which we've talked about, which are both kind of types of angels. Yeah. And I found on so many answers to questions, people saying things like, well, some people think there's a difference, but you can't really know because they're never described in the Bible. They're like, not? I- I know for a fact that's not true yeah. because we've definitely read several descriptions. Oh, for sure. What are you talking about? We've at least read descriptions of like their many faces. Right? I mean, just like what the faces are, maybe not specifically like down to the granular level of what they look like, but yeah. Yeah. So like the first time we ran into cherubim was back in Genesis. Mm-hmm. So when Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden and there was a cherubim with a sword, with a flaming sword that was guarding the entrance so they couldn't get back in. And at that point, we didn't really get a description. Yeah. And so I think maybe these people who said it's never described stopped after Genesis, and that's as far as they read. Uh-huh. Sounds accurate. Yeah, sounds accurate. Uh, but I did finally find one question 
on Hermeneutic Stack Exchange, where someone was asking specifically about how in Ezekiel, the second vision that we had in Ezekiel, do you remember this one where one of the cherub took fire, like took coals in its hand? He like, he like picked it up with tongs and gave it to the cherub who like took it in his hands or something like that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. And then they referenced that in Isaiah, there's a verse where a seraph takes a coal out of the altar, but does it with tongs. Okay. And the question is basically like, you see a baby. Why does the seraph need to use tongs? <laughs> why can the cherub just yeah. touch it with his hands? Totally. And this person didn't really answer the question at all, but they gave this breakdown of the description of seraphim from Isaiah chapter six and the description of cherubim from Ezekiel chapter 10 and kind of compared the two. Okay. And so one is that in Isaiah, the seraphim there were described as having six wings per seraph versus the cherubim in Ezekiel had four wings. Okay. Right? That the cherubim were specifically just four versus the seraphim were potentially many. Okay. There wasn't like a specific number for them. Um, And then the cherubim are the ones who got described with the four faces, where they had the face of a man, the face of a lion, the face of uh, an eagle, and what was the other one? Like a a bison or a bull? Was it a bull or something? Yeah. Yeah, like an oxen. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And and kind of the, the description I found for that is that they're supposed to each represent something so that the, the human represents humanity. Mm-hmm. The lion represents wild animals. The bull represents domesticated animals. And then the eagle represents birds. Okay. Because birds. birds. <laughs> you know. Any kind of raven. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. But then it's weird that we get this description about drawing the cherubim with two faces. And I'm like, is it just that they're like the eagle and the bull heads are faced away from us in these drawings? Like, wouldn't you alternate them? Yeah. I don't know. It just kind of left me with more questions than I came in with of like, Hmm. or is it just that we're specifically, this temple is dedicated to just humans and wild animals? So we got a a bird and pets sanctuary elsewhere. Right. Yeah. Is that a different temple? Yeah. The whole thing's just... It's just weird. Interesting, yeah. The the thing I wanted to leave you with here is to go back to something we've talked about a little bit before, but just like this temple, right? When when's it going to happen? Is it going to happen? What's what's the deal, right? Yeah. And I found uh, this section here on this is on BibleStudyTools.com, classic here. Mm -hmm. And this, I just want to read you this first paragraph as it is, and we can talk about it a little bit. So. It says that uh, several non-literal interpretations have been advanced by interpreters regarding the millennial temple of Ezekiel. These are, first view, Mm -hmm. the vision was given by God for the benefit of post-exilic Jews to help them remember Solomon's temple design and then restore the old temple. Second view, here's an ideal blueprint of what should have been built by the Jewish remnant after their return from Babylonian captivity that I guess they didn't do. Third view, the prophecy is a grand, complicated symbol of the Christian church. This is the standard, (laughs) yeah. Uh. This is the standard amillennial position. As Milton Terry says, this vision of restored and perfected temple service and land symbolizes the perfected kingdom of God and his Messiah. 
And then the fourth view, this was my favorite. The fourth view, the glorious descriptions found in this prophecy will surely be fulfilled at the millennium. But do not fuss over the how of the fulfillment. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Do not. This is the covenant wow. premillennial position, which refuses to go into details. Gosh. <laughs> it just, it reminded me of the secret, right? Oh, it's like, yeah. don't focus wow. on the how. Yeah. Okay. Just focus on, just manifest this temple. Just manifest just deal with it. this temple. Yes, of course. <laughs> Very specifically though, put your, take your little drawings and pop them up onto yeah, on your, your vision, vision board. board. Yeah. Wow, if only it were that easy. <laughs> Boy, oh boy. Amazing. Wow. Okay. Well, I looked into these references to other gods in Psalms 82, Mm -hmm. which is really fascinating. So this is not the first time, of course, that we've run across these references to other gods. So it all runs into the fact that in Hebrew, the word that's used is Elohim, which is the same word for God, but it's also the the plural word Mm. for gods. Yeah. Multiple. Oh, interesting. Cherubim and seraphim, Elohim. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. Wow. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Just to give a preview, this particular psalm is going to come back around again in the New Testament. Jesus is going to reference it. And you... He's going to reference which thing? This psalm. Oh, the short boy that you did. Yes, the short one that I did. Okay, cool. cool now, cool, cool. there's a lot of different interpretations here. Some people interpret it as this is God's divine counsel of other gods, of some lesser gods. Oh, that's cool. There are... That's fun. I know, which is cool. It is cool. Yeah. There's, of course, I think the more classic Christian interpretation that, oh, we call him Elohim because that refers to the nature of God being one God with kind of these three incarnations of God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's mm. why we call it okay, Elohim. That's why it's plural. Okay. Yes. Other people interpret as, oh, in this particular context, the Elohim is referring to the, the pagan deities, to the false gods. It's only false gods. Sometimes in the Bible, Elohim is used to refer to angelic beings as well. And then in other places in the Bible, Elohim is used to refer to the judges, like the human judges. Wow. Oh. Yeah. Wow. So kind of depending on really what you're looking for. Yeah. You can find it. Kind of what mood you're in. Yeah. It can provide a lot of different interpretations. And then, of course, I've also come across a lot of interpretations of people who are like, yeah, when the Bible was, you know, when a lot of this oral tradition was first being handed down, the Hebrews were polytheistic. Mm -hmm. And it's only Mm -hmm. afterwards that they started becoming more monotheistic and then had to go back and edit and make all of this sound a lot more monotheistic. If you recall, very early on in Genesis, in the creation story, God even says, behold, the man has become as one of us, Mm. you know, or shall be in the form of us. Like that even made it through. Wow. So it still kind of comes under this, this, I guess, fuzzy interpretation of was this psalm at a time where the Hebrews fully embraced a pantheon and to call, to point out that Yahweh is way better than all of the other gods is actually a good Mm. compliment versus just, oh, you're way better than obviously those BS gods (laughs) next door that our neighbors worship is a little bit different. (laughs) Right. But yeah. Yeah. That's what I got. Wow. It is interesting that we, we have kind of a mix of that, right? Where like sometimes it sounds like we're we're kind of saying like God's just the best of the gods mm. versus 
other times where it's like, they're not even real, right? They're like wood and they don't answer your prayers. <laughs> yeah, it is. They're wood gods. It's yeah. inconsistent. Uh-huh. It is. Or as, as Eugene likes to call them, you're like, no gods. Isn't that what he usually calls them? Mm. No gods, yeah. It's like pray to your, your non-gods or your, your no gods or something like that. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, what a... I just... I find myself so... I, I guess just like fascinated at how much complexity and nuance and ambiguity there is in something that at least for me growing up was taught as not having any of those qualities. Mm. Mm, yes. Right? It was taught very much as absolutes. Interesting. It's a very interesting yeah. point. Yeah. Right. Or, or like certain parts were like, there's some question marks here. We don't mm-hmm. quite know what this is, but like a lot was taught as absolutes. And it's just like, nah. not getting that, not getting those absolutes, y'all. Even reading it as it is, right? I'm not even, yeah. I'm, right? Like even without trying to like question things or looking at translations or whatever, it's like the questions are already there. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and then when you take in yes. the fact of like just sort of real life from thousands of years, like, there's even more questions. It's just yeah, wild to me. It's really, I don't know. I, I've really loved doing this podcast so far. Yeah, yeah, me too. I feel like it's really it's great. It's just opened up a lot of thoughts. I hope it's helped both of you in ways that like I wouldn't know about. It, you know, it has. I, I think we were talking about this podcast to some friends the other day, friends who didn't know that we had this podcast and (laughs) explaining ourselves. And it was funny because their impression when they learned kind of my background and my religious upbringing and kind of religious trauma and then learned that I spent every week talking about it, like they seemed kind of worried (laughs) about me. But I was like, this this really does for me feel like it's a way of putting this all in perspective and in context. Like being able to come back to the Bible as an adult from the perspective that I have now, for me, I know for, I totally recognize and can respect that for some people, this would be the last thing they would want to do if they had a traumatic religious upbringing. And I think that's totally okay. I'm not saying yeah. that the way we're doing it is the way to deal with it. But I have found that for me, there is something about it that just helps things fall into place a little bit better. And Good. adding humor Good. creates more distance yes. from it. That makes mm. sense. Absolutely. Yeah, it's like I find myself having to kind of hold myself back from like when I'm talking about the podcast to an audience that I don't know their religious situation, I I find myself just sort of being a little bit vague about it. Right. Mm. And like, for example, I have a a friend, um, like a a coworker slash friend who I have identified as Christian. Like he does identify that way. I don't know the specifics of kind of like where he falls on that spectrum of how fundamentalist he is or how like how much he believes in inerrancy and stuff like that. But there's this part of me that kind of wants to talk to him about the podcast as like, oh yeah, you know, it's, it's great. We have a lot of fun. And really like for anyone who cares about the Bible, I think really like it's kind of required listening. Like you've really got hmm. to, to really understand it and, and get it and whatever. And then there's other part of me being like, I don't want to upset my coworker. And I don't know <laughs> if that's true or not. Like, I don't, I just, I don't have perspective anymore of like what's yeah. offensive and what's not. I, to, I don't know. To people. So anyway, I don't know. That's just weirdly something I was thinking about earlier today that's relevant to what we were just talking about. Yeah, for sure. Wow. Well, thanks everyone as always for going on this journey with us. It's been 
really enlightening for me too, who, you know, didn't come to this podcast having any knowledge of the Bible whatsoever. But now I feel like I could teach a course on it. Not really, but... <laughs> Dude, I would love that course. Yeah. That's a total lie. I would love to see your syllabus. Be like, yeah, so God is kind of a bad boyfriend, but let's... <laughs> no, it would be terrible. Everyone would hate me, but whatever. It's fine. Anyways, um, we appreciate it a lot. And we'll see you next week for the penultimate episode of Ezekiel.